This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Tom, Rich and Brandy with you on Thursday, the 4th of January for a very busy show with quite the Saudi focus. The interview that got everyone talking this morning was with Haitham Matter, who is the Managing Director for the Middle East and Africa at IHG Hotels and Resorts. They have opened a regional HQ in Saudi Arabia, but not the regional HQ. And yet it still passes muster. We're going to find out how. We've also been looking at Saudi wages and the interesting dance between wage rises and the cost of living. That's with Omar Zakaria, who's the Associate Director and Country Head for the Kingdom at the recruitment firm Robert Walters. PMI data out this morning as well for the UAE. Employment featuring in that too. Jean Walters, economist for Emirates MBD, has been telling us what the numbers say about the bigger picture. And we have been saying a very, very warm Mabrook to Simon Penny, who is now Simon Penny CMG after appearing in the New Year's Honours list. One of our top stories this morning is undisputably parking. Parking lot party, Tom Urquhart. Yeah, we've been looking at the latest um, move uh, here with regards to the establishment of this new company. Uh, It's called Parkin, without the G. Um, And it has been set up, issued by the ruler of Dubai. Um, New law, in fact, put into effect. Uh, the core function of law number 30 uh, of 2023 is to establish Park Inn, a public joint stock company tasked with overseeing almost all things Park Inn Dubai. RTA will then transfer certain or all of its responsibilities related to public and private parking to Parkin, as well as the role of issuing relevant permits. Details still a little bit sketchy in terms of the finer details, but we do know that Parkin is going to be looking after the creation or the creating, the planning, the design, the operation, the managing of public parking spaces. Uh, They'll also be tasked with issuing permits to individuals, enabling them to use and reserve parking space. This one's got me doing it now as well. Parking spaces under the management of Parkin. This is all, we believe, in preparation for an IPO, a stock market listing. Hot on the heels of Dubai Taxi, which was a success, like most of the Dubai government privatisations have been. We spoke about this, Brandy and I, a few days ago with Andrew Tarbuck, who is the partner and head of capital market at the law firm Altamimi and Company. This is what he had to say. It's very much in the market, which is the continuation of the Dubai privatisation process. So um, you saw Dubai Taxis, but uh, parking uh, is uh, slated to come through in 2024, so that will continue. Slated to come through in 2024. Lots of reports last year doing the rounds about which banks might be involved. Rothschild's name was uh, mentioned by some of the newswires, as was Emirates, MBD and others. Brandy, we don't know the financials yet, do we? That will, we think, come a little bit later on. But your hunch is it's going to be a similar kind of dividend-paying model to previous privatisations? It would be surprising if it wasn't, I guess, is the is the question. We know that these public um, 
joint stock companies get set up before an IPO. We've seen it with Salic. We've seen it um, with the taxis as well. We know that they've come out and said the government needs to keep a 60% shareholding and parking, whatever happens. For me, the question isn't... Well, no, there is a question around dividend because as we see higher interest rates, obviously, um, dividends need to be higher to be more attractive as opposed to just keeping your money in the bank. But the other big thing for me is how much... Of this IPO, we will see dedicated to the retail tranche um, because the amount that was oversubscribed in the retail tranche, particularly on the taxis, was was large indeed. We've seen a huge amount of retail interest in these IPOs that are easily understood and seen. We all know, you know, we know how parking works. We know we'll pay for it. We have strong opinions about what's going to happen to the Dubai population more than we might do about obscure petrochemicals that are made in factories that we could buy into, for for instance. Um, we know that a lot of the DFM growth that we saw in December, what was the number for brokers that was like 146% rise December year on year in the number of new accounts that had opened? And that was being put down to that Dubai taxi IPO that was 130 times subscribed overall. So what will the retail tranche look like as well as the dividends those are our two big parking questions I've got a third one which is and it's a rhetorical question you don't have to answer it but the role of Salik in all of this because late last year we got the story that Salik which runs the Rotels here and is a listed company had got the rights for want of a better word to manage parking at Dubai Mall world's biggest shopping mall by some measures that's parking I'm not going to throw the question at you, Brandy, because you when don't When is a parking know. space not a parking space? Well, Tom, you mentioned public parking, and that was the, the key word there, wasn't it? Parking will cover all public parking, whereas, of course, the Dubai Mall is private sector. Nothing to stop all of the Emirates doing the same, I guess, or anybody else for that matter. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a well-trodden path, isn't it? I mean... I remember when I was growing up back in the UK many, many years ago, but, you know, you heard these stories of law, of people picking up plots. NCP, I mean, they were like the first billionaires ever, weren't they? The National Car Parks lot, you know, when they privatised those and people people that had parking lots or parking spots, um, there's big money in it. And we've seen, you know, we've all been here long enough to remember where you could literally park in the sand or you could park, you know, the, the, park on the side of the road, etc., it's changed fundamentally, um, as uh, anybody will tell you. There are, there's no such thing as a free parking space in town anymore. And people are making a lot of money from it. And, and, and why not? And didn't we find out a while ago that actually the UAE owned an awful lot of parking in Chicago? Yes. Yeah. It was, was it one of the funds in Abu Dhabi that bought the public... Was it Boston? Yeah. Chicago. It is Chicago, um, which have, um, like, funny enough, so the 99-year structure with a renewal period for um, the parking that we have seen there. Um, in 2008, the city of Chicago um, sold 36,000 of its parking metres um, for a billion dollars on a 75-year lease, um, creating a company called the Chicago Parking Meters. Um, and, yeah, we did see um, Abu Dhabi Money, Abu Dhabi Investment Company, um, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority by into that. Mm. That's one of our big stories this morning is the parking story. Another one is hospitality. Big changes in the downtown area. Yeah, 
Yeah, and talking of Abu Dhabi Investment, Abu Dhabi National Hotels Group investing into Ema Hospitality Group. Five particular um, properties in the Ema Hotels uh, group portfolio, um, and all of them will now change their name. In fact, they've changed the name already. This affects a couple of properties, three address properties, and then a couple of downtown properties as well. Um, wanted to know a bit more about this, so we asked the Middle East reporter for Skift, Josh Corder, to join us live in studio. Um, loads of different moving parts on this one. Marriott, Kempinski, Ema Hospitality Group, and, of course, the aforementioned ADNH. I wanted to know, first and foremost, from Josh, what does this move tell us about Abu Dhabi National Hotels? Uh, how active uh, have they been in the investment market? What's it say? For now, they're very much focused on ownership in the UEE. What's interesting about this deal is it's a franchise deal, which basically means Marriott and Kempinski give their branding rights to ADNH, and ADNH employees run the hotels wearing Marriott uniforms or wearing Kempinski uniforms. So for them, it's sort of a first instance of we're going to run a luxury hotel like a JW or like a Kempinski and see how we do. It's quite uncommon for hotels of sort of that prestige to be franchised, so it's going to be interesting to see how the Let Abu Dhabi guys handle it. Josh Corder of Skip. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we're looking in more details. Uh, some numbers that Rich has been very excited about. It's the UAE PMI numbers, uh, the December numbers, but they are the first figures that we've got in the new year. Having a look at what's happening in the private sector here, the non-oil private sector economy. On the line, we are joined by the Emirates MBD economist, Jean Walters. Morning, Jean. Morning. Uh, you've had these numbers same as us for about 20-odd minutes. But let's look at the story behind the numbers. We've got the second highest reading um, for these PMI numbers since mid-2019. Particularly strong new order volumes. What does that tell us about what's happening on the ground? Yeah, so that's correct. We had the headline measure increasing from a value of 57 in November to a value of 57.4 in December. Now, it's worth just mentioning that how we interpret these numbers. So a number above 50 is indicative of an expansion in activity, whereas a number below 50 tells us that there's a a contraction in activity going on. So, again, we've got a number that's already been above um, 50 um, in November, 57, um, but it's gone up to 57.4 57.4 in December, so that tells us the pace of increase in um, uh, activity is rising. And as you said, that's the second highest reading since June 2019. Um, and so it basically tells us that uh, activity in the non-oil private sector has remained really quite robust going into the end of 2023. Let's look at some of the things that have been of particular concern of interest. Two things of particular concern in previous PMI readings throughout uh, 2022 and 2023. Uh, The amount of stock that people have been holding, so inventory um, and inflation. So the the purchasing price and the input prices that we are looking at. What does this print tell us about where we are with those? Okay, so inventory growth is an interesting interesting one. Um, it dropped off slightly um, in this reading, um, but that's coming off a, a six-year high. Um, so what companies did um, in December is they appear to have used up some of the stocks that they were holding, um, uh, and they may have done that for efficiency reasons or cost reasons, but ultimately um, 
uh, reading the report, it seems that this may have helped uh, in terms of inflation or input costs for firms as well. Um, so they weren't uh, demanding quite as much from the people that they purchased from, uh, and they may then have been able to actually um, negotiate better deals. Um, and we can see that the input cost measure actually um, was down to a five-month low. So that's relatively good news as well. On the inflation front, this report, like last month's report, also makes uh, notice of discounting um, what companies are having to do to remain competitive. Talk to us about the bigger inflation picture there. Yeah, so again, we've seen selling prices um, fall again in this report. And as you said, that's consistent with what we've seen um, for quite some time in the UAE PMI readings, uh, where firms are electing to... um, to reduce prices or uh, take a take a hit to their margins when input costs rise, and uh, by not passing those on to their consumers. Um, and again, I think that's um, that's a byproduct of um, of operating in a competitive and um, dynamic market such as the UAE, where we've seen um, strong domestic demand in particular. Um, so firms are, are working hard. To, to get the biggest market share. Um, but it's also consistent with what we maybe see on a wider picture for the UAE in terms of inflation, where um, inflation has actually been relatively um, moderate uh, in the last uh, year, especially when we compare it to what's been happening um, uh, in the global market. Yeah, we've got a couple of lines in here as well. Speaking of moderate on employment, there's talk of a modest rise of in, uh, in employment and the filling of vacancies. But not as much space and not the talk of wage rises that we saw in the Saudi PMI yesterday. Put this in context for us. So I think, uh, you know, we've, we've also got to remember that in the UAE we've seen... Um, uh, one of one of the big stories of 2023 was arguably um, the population or the, the the fact that we think population has increased quite a lot in the UAE uh, over the course of 2023. And so you're not necessarily getting the same um, wage dynamics occurring uh, in the UAE where uh, we've got uh, potentially a larger pool of people uh, available to take on jobs. And so you don't necessarily get the same kind of price pressure happening. 20 seconds. This is forward-looking as well as backward-looking. They do ask participants about expectations. How optimistic is the private sector for 2024? The output expectations for the next 12 months uh, uh, increased in December in this reading. Um, That was one of the highest recorded in the past four years. Uh, And the report seemed to suggest that a lot of that was down to the rise in the sales pipeline um, and and along with that, we did see a slight tick up in, in employment. So overall, it looks like businesses are pretty optimistic about going uh, into 2024. Jean Walters, senior economist at Emirates MBD, going through uh, those PMI numbers with us. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We've been pulling some of the numbers out of what has come out from Saudi when it comes to the non-oil private sector. Uh, the thing that was the most interesting to us was just a couple of lines as to what was happening with salaries. Uh, The Riyadh Bank says it's seen one of the sharpest wage increases in December in nine years. We're asking what's happening with the Robert Walters country head for the kingdom, their recruitment company, Omar Zakaria. Omar, it's lovely to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Riyadh Bank says in its PMI report that it is seeing an acceleration in private sector wages in Saudi. What are you seeing? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we we are now in the seventh year of the Vision 2030, um, and this this market right now is the busiest recruitment market in the kingdom that we've seen. Uh, so companies are competing for talent, and obviously that's pushing up salaries across the board in the kingdom. Can you give me a, a rough estimation when you say they're being pushed up year on year? What would you estimate? I would say from next from last year up and uh, for, for going into this year, we're probably looking at a flat ten percent increase in salaries. This depa- this also uh, the factors are uh, talent shortage. So com- clients and companies that want to pay more uh, to get the right talent. Uh, there's lots of relocations of uh, people moving to Saudi. We've seen about two hundred thousand people move to Riyadh this year, uh, and that's pushing up costs because the the units uh, the rents in the units live uh, are less so that's kind of you know getting the cost of living is also increasing there okay let's dig into there's quite a lot there so you say 200,000 people moved to Riyadh in 2023 yeah. talk to me more about what impact that's having on the cost of living what are you hearing and seeing well, uh, the main thing is, you know, Riyadh is, is a city which is developing. You know, there, there are lots of things happening, lots of projects happening, uh, lots of residential projects that are being launched. The kingdom is, is pushing a lot of initiatives through, um, but the city is still not geared up for a 10 million population. It's about 7 million right now. Um, so when people move there, you know, the, the demand for housing units goes up. You know, that's pushing up prices, uh, prices there. Uh, you know, there's more. Uh, the VAT in uh, in Saudi is 10% more than the UAE. So obviously, you know, when you do your groceries and you do your shopping, that goes up. So that's kind of impacting the, the inflation. And that's why you're seeing the rise in salaries. Do people know that when they are moving in? What kind of conversations are you having with candidates? Well, usually with candidates, you know, if, you, if you're in the region, you understand Saudi because, you know, 75% of everything that that's happening in the region now is happening in Saudi. But especially when we speak to candidates outside, they have a very different perspective. You know, they think that if you are moving to Saudi, you, you can probably get a 40, 50% rise on your current compensation. But those days are gone now. And, you know, you're probably looking at on average about 20% on your current salary. That's what, on average, what companies are willing to pay. Um, but the thing is, you know, Salary is one, one part of people moving to Saudi, but the projects in Saudi, uh, the, the kind of things that are happening, the new cities are being built, and people want to move there for this, not just the salary that is. For the opportunity of being for involved op- in something funky. Absolutely. <laughs> Which sectors are seeing the, the biggest rises? Where are you seeing the biggest pay bumps? So the kingdom basically has a sector strategy and they're focusing on six main sectors now for, for the within 2030, namely our transportation logistics, uh, information technology, you've got ledger and entertainment, uh, tourism is big in Saudi, uh, and then you've got uh, real estate and hospitality. These are main sectors where you're seeing a lot of demand in hiring and also salaries are going up. Where are you finding the people that you're placing in the kingdom? Well, it, it depends. No, we, we recruit people across uh, from across the globe, uh, but 80% of the work we do in Saudi are still Saudi nationals. There's a big push by the Saudi government to hire locals and have more locals in, in organizations across the kingdom. Uh, but if you look at expats, we're looking at expats from all over the world. There's no specific uh, country or area we target. Rough percentage of those expats that you are placing, what percent would you say were already resident in the Gulf that are coming in from other Gulf countries? I was 50%, 50%. What's the churn like? Once you place someone, how likely is it that they stay where you've put them? 
Well, that, that's another challenge in Saudi, right? I think one of the biggest challenges employers are facing in Saudi right now is to attract talent and then to retain them. You know, because there's a bit of skill and talent shortage in the kingdom, you know, a tenure of two years is considered a decent tenure in Saudi because the market is changing, the demand is high for skilled labor. Uh, but on average, you know, I would say two to three years is what the people look for, you know, when, when they look to hire. How much poaching's going on? Loads, loads of them, all across. And is that on salary? It's on salary, it's on opportunity. There's a lot, there's a lot of poaching happening within Saudi nationals because that's kind of where the real challenge is in terms of recruiting uh, the right skill set and the right person. But across for expats, it just depends on, on the skill set uh, that they bring to the table. But there is uh, quite a lot of happening and there's a lot of competition for talent as well in the kingdom. One of the, the notes that came out of this PMI report was that employers were saying that they had to raise rise, raise wages to, to keep the key people and to keep up with the cost of living. They said that the cost of living was potentially still outpacing what salaries were doing. Is that true? Well, again, cost of living is going up, but I think the, the, the main factor is to keep new people. You know, if you're not keeping up your salaries... Uh, up at the market rates, then you will probably lose talent to your competition. So that's probably the main factor, yeah. What are the, the soft questions, the non-salary questions that candidates are asking you? Saudi seen as a hardship posting for an awful lot of time. Are concerns changing? I think especially for international global expats, you still got to educate them uh, a bit about that, you know, but it is not anymore a hardship location at all. Uh, Lots of people want to move to Saudi now because of whatever the funky projects you mentioned are, are going around. Um, but the soft questions are more about, you know, the family lifestyle, the, the schooling, the, ki- the, ki- the kind of schools available there, the work from home policy, you know, the, the holidays and stuff. Uh, because it's still uh, quite unknown to a lot of people globally. Uh, in the Middle East, everybody knows about Saudi. But if you look to speak to someone in Australia or US or UK, they still want to know about what's really happening, how's, how they're actually living in Saudi rather than working for the whole family. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Omar Zakaria is the country head for the kingdom at the recruitment firm Robert Walters. We appreciate your time this morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Talking hospitality now, talking Saudi Arabia. Haitham Mata is the managing director at IHG Hotels and Resorts for the Middle East, Africa and Southwest Asia. He's with us in the studio. Haitham, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you, Richard. So you're here principally because you were listening to the show yesterday and we were talking about the deadline line in Saudi Arabia for big multinational companies to move their headquarters for the Middle East to Saudi Arabia. That was a condition that Saudi Arabia set for big companies to win contracts, government contracts in Saudi Arabia. And Tom rattled off a list of companies that had done that, and IHG was one of them. So I'm looking at the headline from October of this year in Arab News, Saudi newspaper. IHG Hotels and Resorts establishes Saudi headquarters, and there's a nice picture of you cutting a ribbon yeah. at the office, and there's a, one of the ministers from the Ministry of Tourism there, and yeah. that's great. That was the 16th of October. But then when I was researching this story, I saw another headline from the following week from CNBC, the TV channel, when your global CEO was talking about this and said, no, we have not moved our regional headquarters from Dubai to Saudi Arabia. Have a listen to this. This is him, Eli Malouf, you'll know him well, CEO of IHG, talking to CNBC about their Middle East headquarters situation. 
headquarters for the Middle East is in Dubai, and it's staying in Dubai. And actually, we just renovated the office, and we're very proud of our presence there. We have opened another office in Riyadh recently to uh, be closer to that market where there's a lot of infrastructure and t- travel and tourism investment, a lot of entertainment investment, and we're growing rapidly in uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But that is not a substitute for our regional headquarters office in Dubai. We're just going to have two offices, our main one in Dubai and another one in, in kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So how do you manage this one, Haitham? Absolutely. Look, as Ali rightly put it, we um, will maintain our presence here in Dubai. Our presence in Saudi Arabia is something we kick-started a couple of years ago when I first moved back to ISG. Um, as, as you might know as well, I was um, senior advisor to the Minister of Tourism, working on their, um, or launching, their, uh, developing their tourism strategy, but also executing that strategy. And part of that strategy was actually... Uh, not just growing tourism and tourism numbers, but also growing the population in Riyadh um, and in Saudi Arabia in general. So uh, opening headquarters was part of the strategy or moving headquarters was part of the strategy that Saudi was looking for. Um, the, The trick here is Saudi Arabia would like to have regional presence Um, from uh, blue chip companies and global headquarters into Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia is working on its infrastructure. It's it's a little bit behind, I would say, on some of the needs, the basic needs of um, schooling, if you like, right? Um, And that is building its way to it. But it's, and, and, and if you look at connectivity, so regional responsibilities like mine, for example, which expands um, over and above the Middle East and Africa with Southwest Asia, with Seychelles, Mauritius, Nepal, India, Sri Lanka, and Pakistan and Bangladesh requires somebody like me to do an abundant amount of travel. At the moment, Saudi Arabia is, or Riyadh, let's say take Riyadh, is probably connected to about 60, 70 cities around the world, whereby Dubai is connected to 166 um, cities around the world. So in terms of connectivity and, and airlines, uh, executives like myself would need to be based here for efficiency, effectiveness, and connectivity. Um, and, and because we have such a vast region, it's probably going to be a little bit of a while before we consider full move to Saudi Arabia. It's not something that we would never consider. Saudi Arabia has truly evolved in many ways in terms of um, the, the lifestyle, the infrastructure. Um, and, and what we have really focused on in the past two years is supporting the tourism uh, uh, ambition, but also supporting the hospitality industry and supporting the local um, talent that we have been really thriving to attract to the hospitality industry. So we now have an office with about 20, 25 people strong from different disciplines, from HR, design, engineering, uh, talent development, um, and also finance and human resources. And And what's your headcount in your Dubai Head office. We're 115 people in Dubai office. So that's 115 families, uh, if you like, in the Dubai office. And, and where we have, what we have set up now is 25, 20 to 25 uh, um, uh, team members in, in Saudi, led by Mahar Abu Nasr, who is my VP for operations and who was actually based here in Dubai with us um, uh, before moving himself to, to Saudi Arabia to open and set up the office. Does the Saudi office count under the Saudi rules as a regional HQ? So it does um, count as a regional HQ, and what it does is needs to have responsibility outside of Saudi. For example, 
if we were to uh, give responsibility to Maher Abu Nasser, our VP operations for Saudi Arabia, for Bahrain or the rest of the GCC countries minus Dubai, that would qualify as a regional office. But where do you consider your regional HQ? Or someone said to you, where is the, the seat of your Middle East operations? So the, the, the regional HQ remains to be Dubai. Um, uh, uh, for the for my region, for Middle East Africa and Southwest Asia. But what you've done is enough. It passed muster in Saudi Arabia, and the men and women from the ministry are happy that you've to say tick the box is unfair because it's not a box ticking exercise. But you have you have met the requirements. I've met the requirements. I've you know we have been supported by the uh, the government to to make this um, um, move or this opening of an office in in uh, Saudi Arabia. At the moment, as I said, the infrastructure is a bit slow. I mean, the ease of doing business is uncomparable when you compare it to Dubai or the UAE in general. And that's something the Saudi government is really working on to improve. Um, it took us, and I've shared this openly with the, the, His, His Excellency, the Minister of Tourism, it took us probably about two years to get the licensing and the, all the documentation we needed, the opening of an account for the Saudi office. But it's getting a lot easier now because of all the learnings. And, and, and you know, Saudi's done a lot of trial and error, and, is, and, and they are learning with a lot of things that are improving, as I can see. Uh, Dubai, don't forget, look, Dubai is, is um, Tim and I were t- just talking earlier, Dubai is a is, is 25-year-old journey that started, right, with developing tourism, um, started off with also, you know, attracting uh, companies to come into the media city and the internet city um, many years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And, and, uh, and we were saying earlier about hardship. If you remember 20, 25 years ago is when I moved to Dubai, we used to get a hardship allowance to live here in Dubai, right? And, um, and now it's a huge aspiration for people to actually move and live in, live in Dubai because everybody wants to be part of this beautiful city, this lifestyle that Dubai pr- provides the education. And I know... You know, the bridges that are being built between the two governments, between the UAE and Saudi Arabia, will only support the growth of Saudi Arabia and its its infrastructure. Finally, in terms of Saudi Arabia, huge interest globally, particularly in the mega projects. 30 seconds left. How difficult it is, is it to get your brands on some of these hotels? Because the Marriott's and the Hilton's of this world want their logos on them as well. Well, look, we're a bit fortunate for the fact that we'd have the first mover advantage. We were the first operator to open in Saudi Arabia in 1975 with the intercontinental Riyadh. We are today the largest operator in Saudi Arabia with over 40 hotels and uh, over 18 to close to 20,000 rooms. Uh, we're also the largest operator in Mecca, Medina and the two holy cities. And we have one of the largest pipelines. So it, it is absolutely uh, a pleasure to, to really know that investors are very keen to um, develop our brands, especially the hero brand, the Intercontinental, and also our bread and butter, the Holiday Inn and Holiday Inn Express. Hytham, great talk. You appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. The thoughts of Hytham Matter, Managing Director at IHG Hotels and Resorts for the Middle East, Africa, and Southwest Asia. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where I shall attempt to get many words in the right order, for this is important. This is indeed an honour. An honour that has been given to a uh, long-term Dubai resident, Simon Penny, formerly His Majesty's Trade Commissioner for the Middle East and Consul General for Dubai, is now Simon Penny CMG, that is, uh, a companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George. This has come out of the New Year's 
Honours List. Uh, Simon's being honoured for his services to international trade and investment. And we are saying a very warm Mabrook to him this morning. Simon, well done. Congratulations. Thank you very much indeed. And this is an honour that has a fair bit of history attached to it, which I know you've researched. Do you want to tell us about it? Well, it's an honour which actually goes back to 1818, and it was originally um, created to uh, for, for military personnel, actually, in the Ionian Islands, which were British protectorates back in, in the 1800s. And over time, uh, the honour has evolved, and it's now evolved into individuals involved in foreign policy, involved in international trade, representing the United Kingdom overseas. And James Bond. And James Bond, that's right. James Bond also has the CMG uh, title. So how do they tell you? Is it a letter? Is it an email? Is it a carrier pigeon? Uh, All of the above. No, in fact, I got a phone call. Uh, We were on uh, a long weekend in Kenya uh, and I got a phone call from my previous employers, actually, uh, just letting me know that uh, I had been put forward to the palace uh, to receive an honour. And would I, uh, if I was offered it, would I accept it? Of course, I said yes. Uh, And then after that, you have to wait during the month of December for the palace to approve the list. And then it gets announced on the uh, 1st of uh, January during the New Year's Honours list. So is that a month in which you had to keep it a secret? So that's a month I had to keep it under wraps. In fact, we were with friends at the time in Kenya and I had to take the call, come back, join the uh, lunch table and not tell anybody, which was tough. And when will you actually get something pinned to your chest? How does that bit work? So there are a number of investitures that happen during the course of of the year. Um, I expect to be doing it uh, hopefully during the summer. And it can be at either Buckingham Palace or it can be um, at uh, Windsor Castle. And typically it's the King, Prince William or Princess Anne who uh, pin, pin the badge, so to speak. Well, let's look at what you've been awarded this for, because you became the first trade commissioner, actually, for the Middle East out of the UK in 2018. What was your mandate for that new role? Well, I took the role on, as as you say, in in 2018, having lived in the Emirates for the previous 10 years. So it was quite a privilege, actually, to take on a role uh, in a country I know very well, but also in a region, the Gulf. And really, these were a set of principles uh, and objectives which were created after the United Kingdom left uh, the European Union, Brexit, as as it was known. And I was really tasked with focusing on three things. One of them is growing UK exports uh, and trade in both directions with, with, with the Gulf and with the UAE. The second thing was growing investment uh, or attracting more investment into the United Kingdom from the Gulf. And the third thing was to develop trade policy. That's things like free trade agreements, one of the freedoms, uh, economic freedoms that came with with Brexit. I'm going to assume that given that they have given you this honour, that you did tick all of those boxes. But do you want to talk us through and tell us how much those metrics actually grew, what, what you did manage to do in that time? Yeah, if you take the first one, trade, for example, bilateral trade, just take the UAE and the UK. When I joined, uh, when I took the role on in 2018, bilateral trade stood at about 18 billion. It dropped, can you believe, to 13 billion during uh, the height of COVID. But I'm delighted to say that it is now back to approximately 25 billion, um, which is a significant growth. And it's the highest on record, actually. And within those numbers, the 25 billion, it's great to see that UAE exports to the UK are also now the highest on record. And in fact, they're 25% higher than they were uh, pre-COVID. So we've seen strong trade growth in both directions. 
When you look at investment, we signed uh, a couple of years ago now with the UAE, a 10 billion pound, what we call sovereign investment partnership. And that will see the UAE invest in the United Kingdom across a whole range of sectors over a number of years. And we set ourselves a target of three to five years and delighted to say that more than 10 billion pounds has already been invested in the first 18 months of that program. So that's been a huge success. And then thirdly, we announced uh, 18 months ago uh, the launch of discussions to uh, engage in a free trade agreement with the GCC uh, across uh, all of the Gulf countries. So it's great to see that all three areas, we've seen very, very strong uh, progress, but it's, it's very much bilateral. It's not one way. It sees very much the UAE benefiting, benefiting as much as the UK. And as you've mentioned, the two sort of spanners in the works there, one you came in on the back of, but the other was sort of foisted upon you, Brexit and COVID. Talk to me, particularly with, with COVID, what that meant for your strategy, how you had to change things. Look, COVID was difficult globally, of course, and we saw international trade contracting quite significantly. It fell about 30, 35% from its pre-COVID peak to its trough. But as I say, it's now grown and exceeded the numbers that we saw pre-COVID. So I think what you're seeing is a, a return to, to health. And as you see supply chains continuing to, to reopen, we're very, very confident that those trade numbers will continue to grow even further in the years ahead. And particularly when you put a free trade agreement in the mix as well, you will obviously see uh, more incentives for UAE companies to trade with the UK and the UK to trade with the Gulf. Being a diplomat can give you an absolutely fabulous window on the world and also front seats to history. You get to go and be places that other people don't. What was the best thing you got to be involved in or the best place you got to go in that role? Well, I think one of the, the highlights, if you can call it that, actually, was the, uh, the coronation this year and obviously the sad passing of, 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 of the Queen. But it gave me a wonderful opportunity to receive so many elderly senior Emirati guests and in the wonderful house that we have down on the creek to hear some amazing stories that predate the formation of the UAE and the role that the United Kingdom played in the very, very early days of Dubai and the UAE. So some amazing stories. And it's really just a demonstration of the affinity and the strength there is between the people of the UAE and the United Kingdom. Well, you've had to leave that amazing house, one Dubai resident not to be moving on because of an eviction notice, but because <laughs> of a, a change in job. You were private sector um, before the diplomatic role, CEO of Royal Bank of Scotland here in the UAE, CEO of ABN AMRO, amongst others, First Gulf Bank you've been as, as well. Heading back into the private sector now, uh, running the Middle East at the investment company Gemcorp, how hard is it to go from diplomatic life back into civilian life? It's far easier than I thought, actually. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the government role, but I really enjoy getting back to the commercial side and actually being responsible for business and transactions from beginning through to the very end. One of the frustrating things when you're supporting other companies doing business is you don't ever personally see business through to the very end. So I'm now uh, very excited working, as you say, for a UK uh, asset manager called Gemcore. We're setting up an emerging market fund in ADGM. We're also going to be setting a fund up in Saudi Arabia, which will see us bringing global capital into the kingdom. So it's really quite exciting to bring together the government diplomatic side of business here 
with the investment side of business and combining the two um, for the benefit of, of not only the, the Gulf, but also the markets that we'll be investing in that matter to the Gulf, like the continent of Africa. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and congratulations to Simon Penny, His Majesty's former Trade Commissioner to the Middle East and Consul General to Dubai, now Companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, having been named in the latest New Year's Honours list. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.